I'm thinking and I'm hoping we're going to finish up the Beatitudes today. And we're going to continue on in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is the hallmark sermon that Jesus has for the born-again believer. And we've been talking over the last couple of weeks. I've been sharing with you from a book that I've been reading um, about... A guy that w was going into ministry and he was looking at going into um, preaching ministry. And, and he learned that the Christianity that he was going to be engaging in was one that was cultural. And really did not understand the significance of, of what Jesus had done. Um, you've heard the saying before and I've mentioned it before that easy times make for easy men. Uh, it came around shortly after uh, World War II uh, when the, the greatest generation um, came out. And we, we've kind of been seeing the effects of that in our society and in our economy, um, that it's very easy to become complacent when times are easy. It is very easy to become um, agitated. It is very easy to become uh, selfish when times are easy. Uh, but something about the way we as humans do, when times get tougher, we, we tend to lean on the things that matter more. Um, and so in engaging this book and hearing about the Christianity that this author was worried about engaging, there was a ton of similarities between uh, the situation he found himself in and honestly the situation uh, that we, we are set in, uh, in our denomination and in our, our local church even. Uh, and so I've kind of been sharing with you his thoughts on what cultural Christianity is. Uh, and then looking at the words of, of Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount where he sits down uh, and he actually begins to discuss with people uh, what a transformed life is. And so before we open up God's words again, I want us to pray. Um, because these are words, like I said the first week, and some of you shared with me after, uh, can be kind of offensive. Uh, can confront us when we don't want to be confronted, can say things about us that we don't really want to hear, um, but I think they're necessary for us. Uh, if we're going to discover Jesus Christ, if we're going to truly be the church of Jesus Christ, these are words that not only do I want us to hear, these are words that I want us uh, to long for. These are words that I want us to desire to hear uh, because it shows where our hearts and where our intentions are. So if you would pray with me real quick before we open God's God, I ask now in this time, in this place, when the creeds have been said, when the songs have been sung, when our frustrations about our daily schedule have been thought about and we've determined what we're going to do for lunch, God, I pray that your spirit would flood this place, that it would rest heavy on the hearts of each person that is gathered here. God, that you would open the ears of our soul to hear what you need us to hear this morning. God, we understand that you are a holy God without blemish, without blame. Everything that you do is good, whether or not it fits into our understanding of what good is. We know that you are a just God. God, we are fallible people seeking to hear words of perfection and left to discern what they mean for our lives. And God, that is something that we cannot do apart from your spirit. 
God, I ask that your spirit would rest on me and help me to be able to say the things that you want said, to be able to articulate the words that I'm not worthy to be able to say. God, receive the glory as we open your word this morning. God, let us respond because your spirit is with us. You've given us your peace through your son, Jesus Christ. And let us respond accordingly. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A vague general direction is never the same as a direct path from one point to another. I'll say it again. A vague general direction is not the same as a direct path from one point to another. I remember growing up learning how to squirrel hunt in the woods or learning how to uh, be in the woods and navigate and find where you're supposed to be. I always did better if my father would say, hey, to get to where we're going to meet up, you need to follow this creek bed. Stay where you can see the creek bed. You can go on either side of it, but always stay where you can see it. And then I remember when I got a little bit older, when we got out of the truck and we got ready, he said, okay, we're going to meet up at that thicket on the other side. What does that mean, Dad? You know, the thicket on the other side. We're in the middle of the woods, Dad. There's thickets everywhere. He said, you know, the big thicket. You're not helping me, Chief. And he's like, remember, and then he shared something. I said, oh, okay. So that is the difference between discipleship versus a cultural and a heritage understanding of the Christian faith. The, the certainty of hallmark of the cultural Christianity is typically a familiarity or even a comfort with biblical principles without the sense of a personal need for salvation. The reality of it is, is that many of us operate every day with our Christian faith from an understanding of basic biblical principles. We know that God's word says, stay away from this. God's word says, don't engage with those people. But we don't understand really the significance of them. You've heard me refer to God before as being thought of as the great cosmic killjoy. That for some reason it was God's desire to go through life and to look at all the things that would be cool and enjoyable and just totally squash them. For some reason, we have it in our mind that God wants us to have no fun. The only happiness that he wants us to have is when there's a tambourine being played in church and we can dance around because we feel like we're breaking the rules. And that's it. And so we live our Christian faith being comfortable with biblical principles. But we always try to stay short of where it comes into the understanding of why is that necessary and what is the purpose of our salvation. So... We have to establish the understanding that a relationship with Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is built on the understanding that God's holiness leads to the realization that God should be feared. And I don't mean like afraid, like we're going to go hide somewhere. If we've got a lot of bad things going on, that's probably not a bad way to be. Remember Adam and Eve? They went and hid. Why? Because they were afraid. So here's the deal. If our salvation is not based on the fear of God as being holy and being perfect, then honestly, we have no reason to pay attention to anything else that he said. If we're not worried about what is going to happen for eternity, if we're not worried about the things that God says versus the things that the world says, then we really have no need for salvation, do we? 
We have no need to be saved from something that we're not worried about. Or is anybody in here as a grown adult still worried about having to take a bath? Scared of taking a bath? Sometimes little kids are, aren't they? We're not because we know what it's about. We know everything about it. But we struggle. We struggle sometimes to revere God and to understand the fullness of God because we're afraid he's going to kill our joy. J.J. Packer would say, unless we see our shortcomings in light of the law and the holiness of God, then we would never see them as sin at all. That's something that we need to think about. The world is increasingly telling us that the things that God has said are sin are like, they're not sin. We should, we should be okay with them. That's okay. This idea that truth is relative to the individual goes against completely what the whole purpose of Scripture is. God says that all things were created in order and everything is meant to exist and to work within that order. And if something is existing or something trying to operate outside of that order, then obviously it is not operating within God's created intention. Sound right? That's a big statement. I don't want to repeat that. The reason salvation is needed is because God is holy and God will not let sin go unpunished. You agree with that? That's a, that's a basic tenet of scripture. It is the whole thing of God redeeming creation from what sin has broken. So if we are going to be born again, we have to believe that God is holy. And in order for us to need salvation, we have to believe that God has plans for what he has called sin. Am I right? We agree with that? We believe in that? You know, John Wesley started this club with some of his college buddies, and he called it the Holiness Club. Because their goal was to meet together, to hold each other accountable to God's standard of holiness. And get this, they realized that as young guys, this was not an easy thing to do. Okay, have you ever met a, a young guy that has trouble with being holy? Okay, just making sure. So the reality is, is that people are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners. Kind of that egg before the chicken type kind of. We all inherit a sinful nature from our first parent, Adam, and we prove that, he was, that he, we are his offspring by sinning ourselves. Would you agree with that? Methodist Church, we call that original sin. Because we are born into a broken creation, because we are born to parents who are susceptible to that brokenness, then we ourselves are susceptible to the brokenness and to the evidence of sin. You can agree with that, right? Children get sick. Children die before their time. So there's, there's a brokenness in all of creation that all of us are affected by. And the author of the book, he made one statement here that I want you to hear. He said, in reality, we don't seek to worship the God of the Bible, but instead we prefer to give occasional nods to a superhero character who beat all the bad guys in the Old Testament, but then also became kind of like Santa Claus. He would answer our bedtime prayers if we stayed off the naughty list for that day. And falling on the right side of the list usually meant not being that bad of a person. Like the bully at school or the kid that always got put in time out during recess, time on the playground. Would you agree with that statement? That if we really dug into scripture and we read uh, about the greatness of God and the goodness of God. And we read about the importance of the task that we have been given as people who have claimed faith in Jesus Christ. We could really, if we were going to be honest with ourselves, acknowledge the fact that when we think of God, we kind of prefer the Santa Claus version, don't we? Jesus, let me do my thing. If I get in a bind, I'll call you. 
Am I right? I'll give you your hour and a half for the week, but leave me alone the rest of the week unless things aren't going my way. Am I right? That's, 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 that's pretty convicting. For the cultural con- Christian, morality is usually determined by how you're perceived by others. That is the most dangerous statement to our faith that I think could be said. For the cultural Christian, our morality is determined by how we're perceived by others. All of us are worried about how other people see us. A lot of us are worried that if people don't see us right, then God's not going to see us right. A lot of people feel that if people think we're a good person, then God must be okay with us. If these people think we're awesome, then God has to think that we're awesome because God can't trump popular opinion. Am I right? We've learned from Israel's history, popular opinion gets them into trouble quite a bit. The most common belief in cultural Christianity is that good people go to heaven. They believe that heaven is a real place. The problem is that this heaven has everything to do with an eternal vacation to Hawaii in the clouds and little to do with God himself. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to share with you a confession. When I was a junior high middle schooler, and all this talk of heaven came up, I felt a little bit of fear and a little bit of guilt because I knew that in the back of my mind, I did not want to spend the rest of eternity singing hymns. For me, the the biggest struggle of my week was having to sing hymns in church on Sunday or to sing in church at all. And honestly, at that time, to be in church at all because I had to sit still and I had to listen And the idea of having to do that for all of eternity was not appealing to me. And so I just deduced it to, this is one of those things where God's wisdom is better than man's wisdom because I know God would not make me endure that for all eternity. If it is supposed to be good, there's no way I'm going to have to do that for all of eternity. But that is the way that heaven is perceived by a lot of people. And that's the furthest that we take it is that it is a vacation in Hawaii in the presence of God, and all the bad things that we don't like about this life are gone. In the minds of many, being a good person is merely an issue of comparison. You ever done that? Oh, I messed up there, but I'm still not as bad as Peggy at the office. Yes, I have a temper, but I am nowhere, if you ever rode with Brother Matt in the church van, I'm nowhere near as bad as he is. You ever do that? You ever done, anybody ever done that? Compared themselves to somebody else to make sure that they're okay? All right. Just keep up with the ones that you see as good and disassociate with people with bad reputations. Parents, is that, what we, is that not what we teach our children about being a Christian at school? Hang out with the good kids, stay away from the bad kids. Is that what we teach them? Is that just me? Sometimes I have to remind my daughter, she's not here so I can say it this morning. Aubrey, be one of the good kids, don't be one of the bad kids. That happens a lot. When other people are the standard of goodness, you can always find people a little worse than yourself. Amen, huh? We're going to need that ammunition one day when we get to heaven. God, I get it. I struggled. But just look at all these other people behind me. Surely I'm better than one of them. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You see, friends, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about these things. Be very glad, as a matter of fact, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Today, we're going to focus on 7 through 12. And we're continuing to look at these facets of character, these things of a person's being that Jesus said are the evidence of a life that has been transformed. And in verse 7, uh, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Blessed are the ones who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. I have never considered myself a not very merciful person until I get inside my own self and I pay attention to my thoughts. And sometimes I am the least forgiving person that I feel walks this planet. I have to remind myself sometimes that I am the good guy. Because when somebody does something that frustrates me or somebody does something that I think is ridiculous, I don't have a lot of mercy stored up for them. But Matthew says that mercy is something that is integral for the life of the believer. As a matter of fact, throughout his gospel, two other times, he quotes the words of the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah is sharing with the people of Israel God says, my desire is that you would show mercy, not so much your sacrifices. Why do you think it is necessary for mercy over sacrifices? I'll tell you why. Because when we sacrifice something, odds are when we give something up, we know it's something that we can get back. If it's something material, we know we can make it back. Or we know that it's not going to put us in that much of a bind. But when we show mercy to somebody, odds are it's because something has been done wrong to us. It has cost us something that we can't get back, our pride or belongings or something like that. And because somebody else was involved in it and it was not done at our own discretion or our own will, it costs us something. So when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, what God is revealing and what Matthew is trying to capture Jesus saying here is that the reason that mercy is so important is because when a person is able to give mercy, it shows that their perspective has changed. No longer is that person operating on their own desires, their own well-being, their own um, procurement or advancement, but instead they are seeing things totally and completely from the perspective of the person in which they're showing mercy to. When Jesus Christ showed us mercy on the cross, he was not looking at the fact that he was going to be beaten 
scorned and publicly mocked and ridiculed. He was not looking at the fact that he would hang on the cross and he would die. But instead, he was looking at what it would accomplish if he were to endure all of those things. So Jesus is telling his disciples in the crowd, Blessed are the ones who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. You see, mercy is something that our world could never have enough of. If we look at the news, what we see is people who fail to operate in mercy. We see countries going after other countries, not for the welfare of the country they are invading, but for their own interests. We see corporations that operate not for the good of the people that they say they are serving, but for the welfare of their profit and their bottom dollar. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful, then what he is saying is that when a person's life gets to a point where they are able to show mercy to somebody, then they have understood for themselves what forgiveness and compassion look like. They have understood the sin that is within themselves and their need for forgiveness. And they've realized that there is no offense that anybody could commit towards them that is worth being upset about. And if we thought about what Jesus Christ truly accomplished on the cross, that because of sin that was present in us from our birth, that we were destined to die, that we were not good enough to be in the presence of God himself because he is holy. And Jesus showed us mercy by changing our situation and our circumstance through his own sacrifice. Can you think of anything in this world that could happen to you that somebody could commit against you that is not worth showing them mercy? You see, that is the difference between the transformed life and the life that is responding to Jesus Christ out of culture. We'll show mercy when it's convenient. When it doesn't cost us. Somebody backs into our car at the parking lot. But it doesn't matter because we were going to trade it off. And they've already given us the check. It doesn't matter now if we take it back total. We got the money. That's all that matters. But what if it's a brand new car. And somebody backs into us. That's a cause for frustration. Or what if we back that new car into a pole that somebody just decided to put there 20 years ago. How rude is that? We don't have much mercy then, do we? So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are merciful, who have understood compassion, who have understood their forgiveness. And then he promises in return to bless them with mercy. We all want mercy from God, don't we? Even if we don't think about it, we definitely want it. Verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. That is a hallmark statement that I have tried my entire life to master. And I make it about five minutes of every day before I check an email or I see a text message or I pull up the news. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. A pure heart is something that the psalmist would say is necessary in order to stand in the presence of God. Psalm 24, chapter 3, verse 4, who will ascend the mountain of the Lord except for those who are pure in heart? But Jesus is saying that 
unlike the Old Testament, to be pure and to be in the presence of God or to be seen as worthy before God, you had to make a sacrifice and you had to atone for things. Here, what he is talking about and something that you and I need to understand is that Jesus is looking deeper than just the physical realm of how things happen. You know, we talked about with Jesus being the, the second coming of Moses and how Moses delivered on the literal, physical sense. Jesus has come to not only deliver in the literal and the physical, uh, but are things that are beyond that. And so here Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, but more so than just what the outward world can tell. It's easy for us to look good for other people, isn't it? But how many of us would acknowledge that what is within us falls very, very short of what God has required of us. Amen. Thank God for grace. Thank God for mercy. So Jesus is telling the crowd that in order to be in the presence of God, they too must meet the conditions of being pure in heart. But instead, Jesus is talking about the intentions and the desires of an individual. Those are things that we can hide from people. We can hide our thoughts. We can keep the things that we secretly wished were happening, the things that we secretly hope would happen from other people seeing. And therefore, we think, well, nobody saw that. Nobody knows that, so I'm good to go. But here, Jesus' words remind them that a life that has been transformed only has the goal of becoming pure in heart and he says, this is what happens when somebody is determined to live for God alone and is not mixed with personal or worldly motives. Anybody reached that point yet? Anybody ever reached that point where you no longer long for a nice house, new things? I'm struggling with that one. I like stuff. I don't need to keep it. I've said before, if I could drive a different vehicle every week, it'd be cool. I'd be all right with the 88 Pontiac one week, but I want the 2020 Chevrolet truck the next week. Give me a Ford Escort one week, but I want to drive a Dodge Ram the next week. Stuff is cool. And we struggle with it, especially in a society that is based on amassing and buying more things. Where toothpaste companies spend millions of dollars each year to try and get you to buy their toothpaste. As an American culture, we've mixed up stuff when we, we worry about marketing for toothpaste. It should come in a white tube with no writing on it whatsoever because it's toothpaste. But no, no, we want the one with the coolest label, the one with the best commercial at Super Bowl halftime. But Jesus says a pure heart is one that is necessary to stand in front of God and it is determined to look for the things of God alone and not mixed up with personal desires or worldly motives. And Jesus said that this type of person will see God. Exodus 33 Verse 11, we see where Moses is meeting with God and the person who writes all this down, which we believe is Moses. He says, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. How awesome would it be if we could speak to God face to face as with a friend? But Jesus right here tells us that if we are pure of heart, then we will be able to do that. So Jesus tells this crowd that this right relationship with God and the path to born-again life is not seeking the things that the world tells them are good. 
It's not seeking to be approved by the people around them as acceptable or, or living right. But instead, the only thing that they long for and the only thing that everything in their heart works for is for a right relationship with God. We go back to John Wesley and this understanding and this idea of the Holy Club. A group of young college guys got together for the sake of motivating one another and pushing one another to live holy and to pursue God above all things that could potentially vie for their attention. That's when your dreams really start taking root. It's in college, isn't it? That, that thing that you've wanted your whole life but you never could afford, it really starts to become a possibility now, right? When that new job offer comes up, all the things that you wanted to do become a possibility. You know, one of the things that I think is, is the most amazing accomplishment out of John Wesley's life was not that he preached all these sermons, was not that he could stand on a stump while people hurled insults and rocks at him, but that when he died... He left behind a change of clothes and a couple of books. And it's estimated that he gave over millions of dollars worth of stuff and money away. Because he was searching for something that all of those things could not get him. To me, that is the most amazing accomplishment that he did in his life. Was that the words that he preached to people day in and day out. He lived it. The legacy that he left was that he lived it out. He didn't just say it, but he lived it out. And then I start looking at myself, and I'm like, all right, no more John Wesley. Let's pay attention to something else. Then Jesus says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And I love that one of the commentaries that I looked at said, be sure to enunciate that it is, Jesus said, the peacemakers, not the peace lovers. How many of us in our walk with God think we're being good Christians if we keep our nose clean and we stay out of people's business? Amen. Oh, me. We get the idea that if nobody is in contention with us and if we're not in the middle of, uh, of any chaotic thing then Jesus is happy with us. But I have learned that peace in our Christian walk comes only as a result of Satan not worried about the journey that we're on. I have learned that chaos usually comes as a result of Satan trying to stop something that we are doing, something that God is doing in us or through us. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who will stand in the face of chaos, the ones who will get into the middle of a situation where somebody is being done wrong, somebody is being hurt, and will work in order to create space that God might be in the middle of it. That is what discipleship is. It is when people have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they have stepped into the midst of sin being present or sin working without people understanding it or seeing it working. And they work so that the spirit of Jesus Christ is able to come into that place or into that person's life. That is what discipleship is. People who don't know about Jesus are being taught 
Jesus by people who have already learned it. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So the Beatitudes are known as the attitude of our being. Be attitude. The attitude by which we live, the attitude by which we speak, by which we long to exist. They speak about a transformed, born-again life. And it says that blessings come for those who work for that to be established in the lives of other people. Every word that we say carries weight, whether we know it or not. Every step that we take, everything that we do has weight to it because if Jesus Christ is present in us and we understand the work that he has done in us, then the things that we do are to show evidence of that and to work for the purpose of that continuing in the life of other people. Throughout all of scripture, you will never see the mention of somebody who is transformed and living and only exists with a heightened biblical knowledge and staying out of trouble. You will never see a hero of the faith that kept their nose clean and read their Bible every day. The people that God used to change lives went to some messy places. I don't know why I did that alarm. It was the worst idea I had. Worst. You don't see a mention in anywhere of scripture of the fullness of God being experienced by people who chose to just live life as a good little Christian. What if Moses had kept everything that he had with God to himself? He'd be one very called goat herder, wouldn't he? What if Peter chose to take the easy way back and just stayed on the boat? The rock on which God had built his church wouldn't be built. What happens when people who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior and claim to have a transformed life do absolutely nothing with it? We see the results of a cultural response to Jesus Christ instead of a faith that has been born again by understanding that because of sin we are broken. We are in need of a Savior. And when we have found that salvation, we get to be the ones that tell other people that that opportunity is the same for them. We get to tell people the greatest thing they could ever hear. You know, I would love to say, hey, you just won a million dollars in the lottery because people are going to like me from then on out. They might even share a million dollars with me or some of that million dollars with me. But for some reason, when we tell people, hey, I have the secret to a life that is so different than anything you're going to experience on the world. A life that will give you peace even in the midst of broken and chaotic times. A life that will give you an assurance of hope even after death. We get to tell people that, but for some reason, we don't do it. So Jesus is telling the people here in this passage of scripture 
that blessed are the ones who live as their life has been transformed. Are we living as our life has been transformed? In verse 10, and I'll finish up, I'm sorry, but again, buffets don't open for another 40 minutes. Verse 10, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So righteousness, a righteous living, will result in persecution. Not a guaranteed chance, or not a, not a chance, but a guaranteed occurrence. And if your faith does not cause you to experience persecution, then it must not look different than the world in which you are living. Don't nobody in here want to hear that statement. You can't tell me that I'm not living my faith out. Jesus says in, in scripture that if you're living your faith out, somebody's going to point it out to you. Somebody's going to point it out to you that you're living different than the world and you need to get in line. The church is living different than the world and the church needs to get in line and live the way they're supposed to live. But this final beatitude, blessed are you when you are mocked and people persecute you. It is the summary of all the rest. Because all the other things that we have talked about, the pureness of heart, the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the mourning, knowing that our comfort comes from God's promises and not from our situation being fixed, all of those things are different than the world. And Jesus says to rejoice when these things cause people to rise up against you because you are preaching the message of life over death. Is your faith in Jesus Christ preaching a message of life to the people that know you? Are your words pointing people towards Jesus Christ? Are your intentions when you do things for the sake of sharing the gospel message with people? And if they are not, in all things, if they are not, then you are not responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a life that has been born again and that has been reclaimed. But you are responding from a cultural expectation so that when people see you, they will approve you. So that you can feel good about other people's opinions. But Jesus says, be careful because the only opinion that matters, the only truth that matters is of the God who has done the work of redeeming you. So Romans chapter 1 verse 5. It says, through Christ, God has given us the privilege and the authority as apostles to tell everyone everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, so that they will bring glory to his name. Friends, that's something that we have to listen to. That is the call of Jesus Christ for our lives. Not to keep our nose clean and to make sure that people at church say that we're doing the right thing. But our job is to respond to what God has done in our lives through his son, Jesus Christ. And then to use every single part of every single breath that we breathe to make sure that that message is being preached and that message is being taught. A vague general direction is never the same as the direct path from one point to another. Jesus Christ in the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount have given us a direct point that we are to follow, that we are to pursue. 
Not that our life will be full of happiness and comfort, but that we might see the fullness of God, that we might make him known. If that means selling everything that we have, if that means getting beat down in the street for speaking up for what Jesus Christ has come to accomplish. Jesus said that is the only thing that matters. But if we set out on our faith with just a vague understanding, then we're going to be responding with a cultural expectation, totally missing the mark of what Jesus Christ has come to do. If we are to lead people to Christ, then we must set that as our goal. And every word and every action that we do must work for that purpose. Will you join me as I pray? Father God, thank you this morning for everything that you do. God, I ask, I ask for your righteousness to be our desire. God, as we look at all the things of our life and all the stuff that we have and all the directions we could go, God, please show to us that your righteousness is the only thing worth having. It was your righteousness by which you created us. It was in your righteousness by which you gave each one of us breath and days on this earth. It's because of our sin and our brokenness misunderstand this purpose for living, that we settle for things far less than what you have in store for us, but that is because we don't share the message of Jesus Christ with everyone that we meet. So God, give us a desire to be holy, for you are holy. Give us a desire to love you as our God, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and God, as a result of that, help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Not that we would help our neighbors feel comfortable and help them necessarily on their pursuit for happiness. But God, that we would share with them the message of salvation because of Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you would receive glory from our lives. So that each day our goal would be to honor you for the work that you did in us through your son. We pray this through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.